0: Hello, and welcome to the Armin Show podcast, Science, People, Creativity, Learning More. We are on episode 416, author of a new book, Learning to Imagine. I have my guest today, Professor Andrew Stolman, Psychology at Occidental College. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad to have you on. This is our second time around. I believe you're on episode 371 or similar Mm -hmm. about your previous book, Science Blind. Wonderful as well. You have a new book out. Now, this book came out this year. It's about imagination. Before we get into the book, is there any connection between Science Blind and your current book? Um, Well, Science
1: Blind is about intuition, and the new book is about imagination. I mean, they're both cognitive processes. Um, Intuition is the... The first um, thought response that comes to mind and the focus of that book was on how our intuitive theories uh, contrast with scientific theories. So the way we think about natural phenomena um, and imagination is about conceiving of novel possibilities, um, hypothetical events um, that you haven't actually experienced or know about um, and it, the, the thesis of the book is that um, imagination is strongly constrained by knowledge. So, knowledge, I guess, plays a very central role because knowledge generates intuitions and it's also constraining the possibilities that you can conceive of. This is true.
0: If someone wants to have an expanded imagination, do they acquire a wealth of knowledge beforehand? Is that a requirement?
1: Yes. yes. <laughs> That's That's what the whole book is about. <laughs> that the There's this myth out there that children are more imaginative than adults, um, because they're just born more imaginative, as if um, it's this limited resource that we come uh, equipped with, and then as we age, we lose it. So, similar to like how you might lose your vision, your eyesight, it becomes worse with time. Your hearing becomes worse with time. Um, but uh, you know, all empirical studies of imagination suggest that it is fueled by knowledge, and children have much less knowledge than adults. You know, obviously, um, and so. If you want to be more imaginative, um, you shouldn't try to put yourself in the mindset of a child. That's sort of the popular advice, right? Um, forget what you know because your knowledge is constraining your thinking, and you know, do various uh, routines that might make you seem more childlike or whatever it might be. But, but no, it's it's just acquiring more knowledge. The more knowledge you have, the more possibilities you can conceive of because imagination. Typically works by extending just beyond what we know to be true And so if your knowledge base is here your imagination is just on the perimeter But if your knowledge base is like this, there's a whole much wider range of possibilities. You can conceive of
0: We usually think of children having this great imagination Why do adults not look like they have that? Have they given up on that? Combining of ideas and reaching out for concepts. Why is it backwards as far as the stereotype?
1: Yeah, it's I think there's a whole bunch of factors going on. I mean, one is that we intuitively connect imagination with fantasy and adults, most adults don't um, immerse themselves in fantasy. I mean, we read books and watch movies, but we don't create fantasy. And we seem to see children creating fantasy um, in their pretend play and so forth. Although there's reason to be skeptical that even children are absorbed in fantasy. but, um, another reason I think we associate imagination with children is we're we're always surprised and delighted when they create something uh, de novo, like just you know, from scratch, it seems to be from the top of their uh, from their own reasoning, cognition. but the products that children create are pretty poor by the standards of like all human uh. Uh, ingenuity, right? Like children are not cultural innovators, Um, but we get excited when they do innovate. uh, So, you know, their drawings, their Lego creations, their... Clay sculptures, whatever it is, um, they're signs of an active imagination. There's no doubt children are born with an imagination, but it's not signs of an extraordinary imagination. You know, to get to the the point of having an extraordinary imagination, it has to be enriched. You have to have the tools that knowledge provides to to generally move a field in a new direction. Um, and, and when you do that, when you become so immersed that you have the expertise to actually move some field, area of study, practice, whatever it is, in a new direction, we no longer think of it as imagination. We just think of it as like part of your trade, part of your skill. Um, it, it's odd that we don't think of experts as being particularly imaginative. We, just, we see them as like uh, having a narrow focus buried into their, um, their line of work. But what they are doing is extending the boundaries of what, we, we, what they conceive of and what other people conceive of in ways that children could never do.
0: It's part of it because when people, the average person looks at children and they imagine something, they think, oh, this is interesting because it's something that they can capture in their mind. Oh, okay, they figured out that, but it's below their level of understanding so they can look at it as imagination versus the popular conception of someone who is very intelligent. That's hard to look at as imagination because it's not uh, underneath your viewpoint. Like it's almost cute when a child does it because you can tell like, Oh, you put those two together. I once did that when I was six. So you see that as imagination, but the really advanced imagination uh, is not seen that clearly because that person didn't even do it as an adult, for example, comparatively.
1: Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Um, there is just uh, there's like a cute factor that our culture glorifies children in certain ways, I mean, not always, um, but it uh, there's this sense of you know children being pure and innocent that I don't think historically we, the culture has always had that view, but it's something that's maybe emerged during the Victorian times and it's stuck around and an imagination gets tied to it. Um, and children have amazing abilities to learn and reason. I mean, there's, there's a reason why humans dominate the earth, uh, because we were born with the capability, higher order capabilities that other animals don't have. And those emerge in childhood, oftentimes with not a lot of instruction. Um, so there, are, there are reasons to, uh, celebrate the cognitive powers of children. It's just that, uh, you know, when we're, we're thinking about, um, new possibilities uh children are not wonderful at generating those they generate we all generate new possibilities for ourselves um and that's that is kind of a tension in the book that that knowledge is always expanding our own imaginations um, but oftentimes not in a way that hasn't already happened in humanity you know so there's a difference between uh creativity with a big c and a little c um every time we learn something new it it. it allows, allows us, enables us to be a little bit more creative, but probably in a personally creative way, rather than having some breakthrough that, that no one has had before.
0: What is it that would limit someone's imagination the most? Are there any qualities they would have like life factors, the stress limit imagination, what can limit someone's ability to imagine?
1: Mm-hmm. So part of it is knowledge. Um, just the more you know, the farther your imagination can roam. The other part of it is being reflective. Um, you know, taking like a meta stance and recognizing that you are trying to generate new possibilities, try out new ideas, um, uh, you know, sit in hypotheticals for a while rather than, you know, actuals. Ac- um, and and I think that that's a skill that that can be developed. Um, also developed with education, though. I mean, along with learning like content-specific information, education helps us think more abstractly and more hypothetically and be more reflective. Um, so they go hand in hand. Um, but that that does seem to be where individual differences come into play more—the the reflective element, because we're all using our imagination all the time in the sense of contemplating uh, situations beyond the here and now, like thinking about what I'm going to eat for lunch in the future or what I might've said differently in the conversation that just happened, you know, that to do that, we're using imagination, but imagination naturally tweaks what we know to be true or experiences that we have had, um, as opposed to, uh, to extending several steps beyond what we know to be true. Uh, so that, uh, the, the disposition to do that at will to um, rather than just think of like subtle counterfactuals, but think of dramatically different counterfactuals. I think that's something that varies from person to person.
0: I noticed you mentioned counterfactuals in the book. If there is a person that is imagining a different kind of future or ways things could have differently occurred, is it good to reach way outside of what has occurred? Or do you want to go slightly distant from what appears to happen or what has happened before? Which one can expand your imagination more?
1: There's going to be risk the further um, you roam from what you know to be true. Um, you know, like if, uh, you know, if I'm contemplating how a conversation could have gone more smoothly, you know, I, I might tweak small things about, you know, what I mentioned or didn't mention or where the conversation took place. I wouldn't, if you, if you go dramatic changes, like, oh, maybe I should have taken off my clothes or maybe I should have, we should have had a conversation underwater or something like that. That's, that's probably not gonna be productive, right? Like that's uh, <laughs> probably lead to, you know, a worse outcome. Um, so the, the small tweaks ensure that, the, the the possibilities you're contemplating are are gonna be um accurate or helpful or useful. The larger tweaks, they could be helpful or useful, whatever, but um there's uh you're walking on thin ice at that point. Which is probably why imagination is all about close counterfactuals.
0: Staying within the range there. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the improvement range. If something is a little bit above or a little bit below where you are that's where you'll learn but if it's too far out it's distant you don't actually pick up on anything from that it has to be within your like a standard deviation from where you are right now mm-hmm. um is it more is it useful to imagine the future versus the past which of those is valuable to apply imagination to because the past is already done but you can look at how it goes differently and the future is not done there's more room for it, but you don't have any uh, guaranteed items there, whereas the past is a uh, fixed in, mm-hmm. in motion.
1: Um, in the book, I, I specifically uh, try to steer clear of episodic imagination, which is at least for thinking about your own life about. Past and future events, because I want to um, instead focus on semantic imagination, like conceptual imagination, possibilities that anyone could potentially contemplate that aren't specific to your history or, or whatnot. Um, but that being said, like uh, you know, there probably is value, some conceptual value, about thinking about future events that potentially anyone could participate in or benefit from. Like, how do we solve climate change? Um, and I mean, there's probably interesting connections between thinking about how we got to where we are with climate change being a problem and how we can solve it in the future. You know, there's uh, a lot of value uh, added by um, studying the the history of the climate of the planet um, because, of course, like the climate has been uh, uh, much hotter in the past, but but why and and what kinds of consequences did did that? Uh, climate reek on, on the life that was around. So thinking about those natural fluctuations can help us think about, um, curtailing the fluctuations in the future. Uh, I, I don't know if there's like an obvious answer to like one future being future oriented or past oriented is better.
0: Makes sense. Sometimes I think about how both they link quite well because an item from the past makes its way into the future item. And you don't see it until the future item is now maybe a past item. And you're like, wait a minute, there was a link there again. Mm. And it becomes a little bit more clear. I've never seen something that's just completely not related to the prior happenings, Mm -hmm. which connects to the (laughs) determinism or Robert Sapolsky's book on that little bit interesting one there. Now, in science, one of the categories you cover in the book, how does imagination apply at the most advanced categories, what are people doing to expand fields? How does imag- imagination apply to that?
1: Yeah. So if I can back up for a moment, the book is structured into three parts that are all about different ways of expanding imagination. The first part is expanding imagination by examples, um, like certain facts uh, that you didn't realize were, were true, um, that that transport you to this new area of possibilities beyond what your your current your past experiences have allowed for and then the second part of the book is about expanding imagination by principle and that's where the science part falls in where rather than it being an isolated fact or an isolated concept it's a whole um uh principle like a a regularity or a law or something like that that's generative and allows you to carve new paths into the landscape of possibility. And then the last part is about expanding imagination by models, which is thinking about uh, a full-fledged alternative to reality and tinkering with that alternative with the purpose of learning more about reality itself. Um, So uh, I think that it's pretty clear that principles and models are more useful than isolated facts. Um, I think maybe we expand our imagination most often by hearing these isolated facts, where you, you've, you know, someone tells you, you know, when you're a child, people have been to the moon, and like that, that possibility is mind blowing. Like, how could that happen? Um, and then the challenge for imagination is somehow figuring that out. How, how was it that you know terrestrial beings made it to the moon, and learning more about the pathway from here to there? Um, but then for when you when you get a new principle, um, then it just opens up whole new spaces of possibility. Like, um, like if you know, like learning economics and learning that, you know, uh, the the pricing of products is not arbitrary. It's all based on the principles of supply and demand um, that just changes your whole way of thinking about the marketplace um, and, and your role in it as a buyer and a seller. Um, it, It not only opens up new possibilities in many ways, it reorganizes the whole landscape of possibilities. Um, And so science is just full of these kinds of principles. And the the gold standard in scientific discovery and also learning science, uh, science education, um, are abstract causal mechanisms. Uh, Mechanisms like natural selection or... um, inertia or I don't know, uh, plate tectonics, um, these sorts of principles, um, uh, suddenly make sense of all these isolated facts you might know, isolated observations. Like as soon as you understand evolution by natural selection, adaptation is all unified. Like it's, there's this, uh, single driving force that has, um, responsible for how it is that all the organisms of the planet are exquisitely adapted to their specific niches um, and you can start making predictions about how if the environment changes in a particular way how will the organisms adapt um, and you can explain unusual adaptations that didn't seem to make sense like the tail of the peacock um, so uh, yeah the you know science is an area where we have, possibly a lot of imagination expanding knowledge that we can learn from uh, the people before us, from the, the culturally transmitted scientific principles uh, from generation to generation. Um, and yeah, I think science education, math education, uh, th- those forms of education might be some of the most productive ways of expanding imagination. Uh, Because beyond just learning a handful of isolated facts, you've got these principles that are just reorganizing the landscape of possibility one after the next.
0: There's something to imagination in science. I recently heard that for physics, imagination, you're filling in the gaps of what already is. Whereas with engineering, when you imagine ways to resolve something, you're bringing a new solution for a way to do things. Physics was already there, or it's already been there while we're here but engineering is like expansion on that does imagination is there a best place for imagination to go or is it is in every single category is there any categories where imagination doesn't have much value (laughs) no (laughs) i don't think so
1: um I mean, in some ways, imagination is just everything. That was the challenge of writing the book. Uh, I mean, one challenge is just that people use the word to refer to lots of stuff. So I was trying to carve out a specific sense that I meant to explore, um, which is, as I mentioned, like conceptual possibilities. Um, but uh, it's it, there's so much cognitive activity that we engage in that's beyond just processing information that's right in front of us. And all of that requires imaginative capabilities. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that uh, you might analyze a particular area as less imaginative than another, but I i think that 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 analysis will just depend on, on what you're linking imagination to maybe, maybe your, your thought is like some areas, um, are more, um, likely to lead to like changes in human activities than other areas. Um, sure. But that, that doesn't mean that uh, one is necessarily more imaginative than the other. It's just that the outcomes are different and and maybe that's good, but I, um, yeah, I wouldn't want to make claims that, uh, um, you know, there's certain areas of knowledge or certain vocations uh, where imagination is is more useful or more central.
0: Now, you mentioned science. How about in the category of math? What makes the most imaginative mathematicians that come up with new formulas that push us a little bit forward? What are some qualities that they might have?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, so there's the, the knowledge piece and the reflection piece. Um, I think... Uh, probably something that w- we undervalue is um, cross-domain fertilization. So, not only being an expert in your particular area, but knowing a fair amount about related areas, allied areas, because um, that's where a lot of the the insights happen. Uh, you make these connections across seemingly different uh, domains of knowledge. Um, and that leads to a new possibility that no one's considered before. Um, because, you know, as, as everyone in an, in a field accumulates the same database of knowledge, um, they're going to have similar thoughts. They're going, it's going to lead people to explore a similar range of possibilities. Um, but if you know something about, you know, field B, that's going to help you, uh, conceive of a possibility within field A that no one else has, um, the, 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 tricky thing though is you just never know when that extra domain of knowledge is going to be useful um, quite often it won't be useful it will lead to false analogies or unproductive uh, connections um, and and so that's that's more of and ends up being much more of a trial and error situation um, but it it goes back to like the the main point of the book, which is that again, if we want if you want to be more imaginative in your own personal pursuits, uh, especially your professional pursuits, you shouldn't try to simulate the mindset of a child. You should just learn something new. Um, you should uh, beyond just what the field has already laid out as the um, proper domain of knowledge for that field. Uh, a lot of the the groundbreaking work happens at the connection between other fields that no one has explored before
0: there's a real power to you have your base in a category but you're able to successfully bring something from outside into your category and it had nothing to do maybe people were working on things here for a while but it really was something from way out there brought in that can be the big game changer so it's like a different kind of competition because you're not competing within your category it's competing to reach out for more in a way mm-hmm
1: yeah, definitely.
0: It's like an expanded framework. Right.
1: And, and people who've made important breakthroughs when they've kept journals about what they're doing, they often explicitly reflect on the process of analogy, um, that they are exploring analogies across domains. Uh, and analogies come in lots of different flavors. It doesn't mean like, you know, if you're a mathematician working on set theory, Knowing a lot about um, ice cream is probably not going to be helpful, <laughs> but right. but knowing a lot about some other area of math that you know something within geometry that that people don't think is related those those are probably the more productive analogies. Um, but who knows? Like it, it, analogies can spark ideas um, all over the place, lots of different connections. It's just it's exploring them. So it's it's knowing enough about your domain of expertise, knowing enough about some other domain, and also being the kind of person who is interested in thinking about connections and fleshing them out and working with them. Um, So it's, again, it goes back both to the knowledge side and the reflection side.
0: If something's more distant from your category, there's more of a risk to it, there's more of a reach. So then for those you want to be more careful and go towards things that really speak to you clearly because the risk is way more substantial than if it's somewhat connected and you can bring it into what you're doing Mm
1: -hmm. yeah i i mean there's a lot of risk and it goes back to something you you brought up earlier um like what constraints uh could either help or hinder a person in in their attempts to be more imaginative um and the the way that, say, like modern academic research works is that the the constraints tend to focus you in on just your own narrow area of expertise. You don't have a lot of room for hypotheticals because you have to be productive. Um, uh, the, there's, there's incentives that lead people to forego that kind of reflective activity that could lead to a breakthrough because it is risky and it takes a lot of time and a lot of... Um, different, um, possibilities considered before you hit on one that's, that's generally useful. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of breakthroughs historically came from people who had the luxury of taking time because they were supported by wealthy donors or they themselves were independently wealthy. Um, they weren't working in like the modern, uh, industry job or the modern, uh, university job, uh, which expects a lot of productivity and, um, a lot of like incremental change.
0: It requires a long period of effort somewhere beforehand by somebody. So they get to a period that things have been consolidated and then you on top of that expand, it's like an expansion period on top of that, but you can't get to that period unless yeah, you have some solid base there, or there's time to do that. It's like time to play but not at like the level of a child because they're playing, but not with the advanced base. <laughs> right,
1: right. Yeah. Yeah, a- what they, what children do when they're playing is that they tend to be practicing the the roles and skills of the adult world. Um, they're just trying to learn to be competent adults. Um, uh, it's not... Uh, yes, there's like an element of uh, novelty and fantasy to what they're doing, um, but it's it's not it's not playing with ideas <laughs>
0: like like the expert does right it's a very uh, strong difference there and so the real advanced item is adults having a level of play and then expanding where humans can understand mm-hmm. yeah that's an interesting one now you have uh, three sections of the book the second section is about the uh, science and math and how imagination applies and other uh, the third section, I don't know if it's in the third section, but you have also religion and ethics. So how does imagination apply to religion and how it is viewed? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so the the section on expanding imagination by model includes pretense, um, fiction, and religion. Um, because in, in all of those kinds of activities, you are creating some kind of alternate reality that you explore very thoroughly. Um, with religion, it's a little weird because, uh, people who are religious don't think of like the metaphysical plane as an alternative to reality. They think it is part of reality. It's just a part that we don't sense in a everyday direct ex- uh, way, uh, through normal observation. Um, but even there's still much that can be learned by learning about religions that you don't subscribe to, uh, by thinking about, you know, how does this religion carve up the world, uh, in terms of its origins, in terms of, um, the, the primary forces at play. Um, and it, it gives us a different sense of like human existence, um, meaning, purpose, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, I'll, in each of these chapters, the focus is on this contrast between what experts in a domain think of, uh, think about it, how they're able to imagine the domain more expansively than novices and the novices oftentimes are children. Um, and so in the the chapter on religion, uh, the focus is on how when children first learn about religious ideas, it's, they interpret them in a very concrete way. That's not at all what the theologians mean by those same ideas. Um, you know, so like Western, uh, uh, religions, especially Christianity, um, uh, have these, um, divine beings that are immortal and omnipotent and, um, uh, invisible, uh, to the human eye and these places like heaven and hell that exist outside of space and time. Um, and the children interpret all this as like the divine beings are just glorified human beings. They're just sort of superhumans, and heaven and hell are concrete places. You go when you die, um, that aren't that much different from, from earth, uh, So, uh, yeah, the attempts to models can expand imagination if you like fully engage with them, but oftentimes our initial take on the model is going to be constrained by how we understand reality, uh, what, what happens to be true, at least what we know to be true. Um, so, Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of people, religious people who never really extend beyond a concrete interpretation of religious theologies. Um, they're perfectly happy to think of God as a superhuman, uh, and to think of heaven and hell as actual places. Um, whereas, you know, there's a, there's a whole variety. And then you have people on the opposite side of things that think about all those ideas in a, in a much more abstract way. Um, so I, I, it's not quite the same as like the chapter on science where there's a correct answer and a wrong and incorrect answer. It's just, you can see that theologies are a form of knowledge that has the power to expand our imagination. In this case, our imagination about metaphysical possibilities. Um, and some people fully engage with those theologies and other people don't, <laughs> especially not children.
0: <laughs> True. The children have, yeah, they come from a, like a blank view usually.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's weird. Like in, the, there are some people who think that religious ideas are sort of natural to children. Um, like they 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 intuitively understand souls as being different from bodies, and heaven and hell as being like different places that you uh, end up, and and like intuitively understand what God is. But when you actually uh, do controlled studies, uh, clinical interviews, um, tasks where they have to make specific kinds of judgments, you find that they think about all these things in very concrete terms. It's like, they're thinking about all these religious entities as if they were the goings on of a town, just, you know, in another country.
0: Perspective there. Hmm. Interesting one. And then in the category of ethics. Do we want to imagine different ways to be ethical? <laughs> Where does imagination play into the ethical landscape? Mm-hmm.
1: So the ethics chapter falls into the section about expanding imagination by principles, uh, with the idea that certain ethical principles open up new moral landscapes. Um, and again, if you start with children and you look at, you know, how children's what children's moral landscape looks like, it's very different from um, the landscape of educated adults. Um, So for instance, uh, children initially conflate um, uh, bad and wrong. They think that if an act has bad outcomes, then it's wrong. Um, Whereas adults tend to differentiate the um, outcomes of an action from the intentions of the actors. And so you could do something with good intentions that happens to have bad outcomes, or you could do something with bad intentions that happens to have good outcomes. Um, so, you know, by making this principle of distinction between um, harm and intentions, um, adults think about the, the morality of interpersonal activities very differently than kids do um another place where kids have a conflated early view is in thinking about um equality and equity uh uh, uh like they they conflate um uh well so they they think that the, the children's initial idea is that the way to distribute resources um in morally is just that everyone should get the same amount, Um, uh, equal divisions among all those who have some stake in the resources. Whereas adults start taking other factors into consideration, like how much do individuals need the resources? Um, How much have individuals worked towards generating those resources? Um, uh, Historical situations. you know future contingencies. Um, so adults' resource distributions um, end up, oftentimes, not being an equal a, a allotment of the pie. Um, and and for kids, they actually think that's wrong. Um, there's one of my favorite studies in that sec- chapter was about. Um, uh, a Robin Hood scenario where there's a character who comes in and he steals from the rich and he gives to the poor and then another character who uh, steals from the poor and gets to the rich. There's a variety of characters doing different things and children were asked to judge whether the, their actions are good or bad and young children are um, Tend to say that that the Robin Hood character is bad. That you shouldn't take things from other people, um, that, and that uh, uh, yeah, they, they just don't have this um, this general sense of fairness that extends beyond equal allocation of
0: resources. It's not the same the way they process things. Some things are much more concrete or direct than the way adults process them, and it comes out with like a limited construct of what the way is. that's part of what we try to bring to them so they can figure things out in time. It's always good to compare. Is that the only two, when we think about like groupings of the way we are as people, there's children and adults, is there any like uh, variation between adults like young adults and older adults where there's a big difference in how they process the world or not too much that we think of?
1: Yeah, I think that for a lot of the case studies that I go over um, about differences between children and adults, um, they've typically been studied in the psychological literature um, under the rubric of something much more specific to that task or area of reasoning. It hasn't been thought of as imagination, broadly construed. So one of the projects here was try to bring together a lot of findings to point out that there's imaginative activities going on um, and children's ability to conceive of relevant possibilities is limited compared to adults because children don't have the knowledge base that allows them to um, uh, consider the possibilities that, that are um, weighing on adults' decisions. Um, but yeah, like in the chapter on ethics, I would say like, Rarely do any of the authors who've contributed to the studies I review think about it as moral imagination. They just think about it as moral reasoning or or moral judgment, right? Um, But moral judgment has to involve imagination because we're constantly making judgments and decisions that extend beyond doing something immediately in the present with the people in front of you.
0: A lot of morals is thinking about other ways things could have gone and which one would be better or worse as a person how does someone does someone figure out their morals from imagining the possibilities and going with the feeling of what is good to them or from comparing to what other people are showcasing
1: oh other yeah you know, th- seeing examples of other people's behavior is definitely um an input into uh not just the moral imagination but all forms of imagination um that's a another big theme of the book is that the most um productive source of information and in expanding imagination is other people uh like yes you can go about experiencing the world um in a variety of ways uh and and, and engage in a variety of tasks but uh there's only so much information that you personally can collect. And humanity has collected so much information. Why not benefit from the information that other people have collected through their experiences? Um, And sometimes that gets distilled to us in like specific principles, like evolution by natural selection. Other times it's distilled to us in like a historical fact, people have been on the moon. Um, Other times it's distilled to us in the form of of, uh, stories. So the whole chapter on fiction is about, um, you know, Uh, fictional models where people accept that that these characters don't exist and these situations don't exist but we can still learn a lot about the social world by considering these non-existing characters and how they react to each other and how their behavior has consequences that extend beyond themselves and and that sort of thing Um, so uh, yeah again I think that's not a way we typically think of imagination we typically um, locate it in the heads of individuals. We isolate it. Um, we especially locate in the heads of children. But so much of imagination is a collective activity uh, that we're we're constantly thinking of possibilities that we didn't experience. But the reason we're thinking of them is because other people have experienced them, or they've had experiences that like set us up to think about those possibilities.
0: It's a nice way to think about fiction as. It's not directly you're seeing what happened to somebody, but it's a representation that's put out of what could reasonably happen to that individual or that group in a made-up form. So it's partially like you're connecting with outside examples of what could be or what is. Mm -hmm. That's a nice feature. And then nonfiction is just directly what has occurred. It's nice to expand our framework that way. It's an interesting one. What is it that when do you think of certain people right now as some of the most imaginative people on the planet? Is there anything that comes to mind? Is that? <laughs> uh,
1: I think that uh, people want like a magic bullet. like this is the recipe for being imaginative, and thus you will end up being, you know, um, it, it will bring wealth and fame <laughs> because you're the the ideas you generate will change industries and humanity. But I I think a lot of it is just luck, right? There's like, going back to like cross domain fertilization, um, you know, there's, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people working on particular um, fields, working within particular fields. And some subset of them are actively pursuing analogies with other uh, fields, other areas of study. And and then only a subset of those will hit upon an idea that works, that that actually is useful to whatever vocation they're in. So it's just going to be a numbers game um, that the humans are born with imagination. There's a bunch of us who are enriching that imagination with knowledge and reflection. But even even those people who are well prepared to make discoveries oftentimes won't because they'll just be exploring a space of possibilities that's not fruitful. Um, <laughs> and someone else will happen to hit upon a fruitful possibility. Um, so... I think that if you start with people who have made these groundbreaking discoveries and try to figure out like what's special about them, um, I think that can be misleading because I think that they just just happened to hit upon a possibility that someone else probably would have if they hadn't existed, right?
0: (laughs) This is a great point. It's like the path. Some people have described that where they said, don't follow my path because it won't even work like mine if you did exactly what I did at that time or that time frame. It'll be different in your circumstance. You can only look at some of the principles or concepts they applied along their way. But to do the exact same things, even as they did it as closely as you can, will not function as they did. Mm-hmm. I even made a clip about this recently where I was talking about impersonation. It says this because people become an impersonator and they work really hard to look similar to the person. And even working hard, some of them look similar, but you know, it's not the person and that's a person that has already the same behaviors and mannerisms and is trying really hard to be similar to that and they can't do it. So to try and mimic somebody's life path with also different variables and timing for how things are now, and you're not the same person and the same potential opportunities that showed up, there's no way to match it. So all you can do is just pick up on some of the principles and try it with your own imaginative force Mm -hmm. moving forward.
1: Yeah i i mean i do think that um this perspective of uh thinking about imagination is being inherently tied to knowledge and so we should strive to to learn more know more be reflective about your knowledge um even though it's not a recipe for success (laughs) because you never know what whether the possibilities you're exploring will work out for you i think it, it it does suggest that there's a recipe for failure, which is to go the route that a lot of like popular advice, um, suggests, which is, you know, um, do this kind of like, uh, spiritual, um, um, uh, habit based way of being imaginative, uh, like a lot of free association and like constantly trying to think at different, um scales small to big big to small like i don't know that you can find uh, books of advice that give you lots of generic tips on how to be imaginative but they're not going to work um because they're they're not grounded in knowledge like it's it's the the specific details of the knowledge that lead you to the right possibilities just these generic practices are not are not helpful (laughs)
0: like if that person doesn't have the knowledge but they do some free association it's like they're not really working with a the base there and they might do some free association, but it's kind of like moving around food on a plate.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of this, these kinds of activities that people subscribe are similar to the kinds of things you might see kids doing. But then again, kids are not culturally innovative. They are innovative for themselves, but they're not pushing the the any field
0: forward. <laughs> That's true. They're just moving a race car. And that was the exciting part of the day. yeah my car went from here to here (laughs) did you imagine that yes i did did that change humanity no yeah (laughs) right i have two last questions here one of them are there any people that got you into thinking about imagination in the first place or is this a self thought of concept that you were exploring?
1: Oh, well, it's, it's got to be other people, right? Yeah, <laughs> to go true. along with the theme of the book. Right. Uh, so in graduate school, I studied um, children, how children think about uh, extraordinary possibilities um, uh, because I was really... my My driving... Motivation for going to graduate school in the first place was just trying to figure out why smart people believe weird things. Um, like, I, that's part of what inspired Science Blind. Uh, like, you know, why is it that people uh, stick to intuitive theories of the world that are obviously wrong, even though we know they're wrong? And then also, you know, why do people believe in crazy supernatural ideas or even religious ideas that just don't have any empirical grounding? Um, And so I thought, well, one place we can look is that maybe there's, um, as children, we have trouble differentiating, you know, things that could actually happen that are truly possible from things that are truly impossible. And the starting point was just this popular view that kids think anything is possible. So I thought, well, we would document this generic view of just not being good at differentiating Um, genuine possibilities from impossibilities and then with age you'd see get some insight into how they are uh, narrowing in on real possibilities but it was the exact opposite that I found uh, which is that kids tend to think that very little is possible Um, they, they not only deny the possibility of truly impossible things like walking on water, walking through a wall but they also deny the possibilities of just merely improbable things like um making pickle flavored ice cream or owning a zebra for a pet. Um, so if it extends too far beyond their own limited realm of experience, either personal experience or what they know to be true just from what they've learned about the world, then they say it's impossible. Um, and so that was the first inkling that you know children's imagination is not what it's cracked up to be. Um, and, you know, as I continue doing this research and also learned more about allied fields, like how children think about, um, fictional events, how children think about, um, uh, what's another good example, counterfactuals. Um, then I started noticing this common pattern that in across all these tasks that are ostensibly different kids are showing, uh, more impoverished imaginations than adults or or usually usually it's among different age groups so like the youngest kids perform much worse than the older kids um in a way that suggests that they're just not thinking beyond um, their limited database of experience um so yeah i mean I have my own set of studies about possibility, uh, but as I started branching out and looking at what other people have been studying, you see these commonalities. And so that that was one of the points of the book was to try to bring all these separate lines together and point out like, you know, kids' imagination is overblown um, across lots of tasks, lots of domains. We see that they actually are performing the opposite of what they should be performing.
0: There's a good point when you see what it actually is. And my last question is what is a message you would want people to take away from the book for their understanding? Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Well, I mean, there's, there's sort of just the, the intellectual point of um, thinking about imagination um, as closely connected to knowledge. And so that, that, uh, that we, we undersell our own imaginations, right? We're um, we're constantly doing things in our own line of work um, or even just in our personal lives that, that are imaginative, but we don't think of them as such because we so closely connect imagination with fantasy and with childhood. Uh, so that's one point is to, um, uh, to recognize the role that imagination is playing in the adult life. Um, I guess another point is just to, uh, to urge people to um, to learn more, <laughs> right? That if you're if you feel like you're stuck in a rut, um, the the way that you can sort of move forward and contemplate a new set of possibilities is not to pull back and try to simulate the mind space of a novice, a child, or just or just a novice in your in your area. Instead. Um, acquire a new form of expertise um, because it's, uh, you will branch out um, in directions that uh, you haven't anticipated um, and you're going to make connections you haven't anticipated. Um, It's going to be way more productive than, uh, uh, yeah, it's, I guess, I guess part of the, point of the book is that the, so many popular books just give people the wrong advice, right? Like they they glorify, you know, the the outsider, the novice. Um, like they're the people who, because they've not been polluted with the, the know-how of the field, they're going to make the big discoveries. And like you can find a few of them, but they're very unusual. They're very rare. All the big discoveries happen by people who are true experts. And we need to think about Imagination and creativity as allied with expertise, not allied with ignorance.
0: It's a great point. It has to connect back to that knowledge base of sorts. Mm-hmm. Professor Andrew Schloman, I would like to thank you for having joined on this episode and describing a bit from your book, Learning to Imagine, for all of the guests. Thank you. Bye too. And we are out.